Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for that first Friday, that first Good Friday, where we can remember what the Lord Jesus came to do. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we consider this story again today, that our hearts might be moved to see the cost of Christ for our sake. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, the, the cross, the symbol of the cross, it's perhaps one of the most universally recognisable sim- symbols in the world, and it's been that way for centuries. And we see the cross almost everywhere we look. We see it here, the Red Cross, the George Cross, Victoria Cross, Canterbury Cross, Macedonian Cross, Maltese Cross and the Jerusalem Cross. You see it everywhere. It's used everywhere. We see also on flags. What flag is that? Greece? What about that one? Denmark? What about this one? Norway? I did hear Norway. What about this one? Finland? Did I hear Finland? What about this one? We must know that, right? (laughs) UK, what's this one? Switzerland? Anyone? Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, good one, Georgia. So we see the cross everywhere. It's, It's a symbol we see around us on flags. You can't escape it. You see it also, of course, at churches, right? Above me. Cathedrals, landmarks, tombstones, war memorials and it's even fashioned into jewellery worn by church leaders, worn even by celebrities. Jewellery, chains around people's neck as earrings. But what does the cross mean? What does the cross stand for? Well, of course, the cross It's a symbol for Christianity and it has been that way for centuries. It's a symbol that identifies the Christian faith. But what has happened with this symbol of the cross is that over the centuries it's in a sense been domesticated. You see, the cross today to many people, if it represents Christianity at all, if it does that to anyone, it really has been reduced to a sort of a religious decoration and a fashion statement so that you don't even have to be a Christian to wear a, a, a diamond-encrusted cross around your neck. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with fashioning the cross into jewellery. People wear it as necklaces, as earrings. Nothing wrong with that. But what has happened over the centuries is the symbol of the cross has become domesticated. You see, if you were a person living in the first century Roman world, That would have been scandalous. You would never do such a thing. You see, in the first century world, when they see the cross, that signified, that pointed to, that symbolised the most brutal, most shameful, most barbaric form of execution. And that's, of course, the crucifixion. You see, no one in the first century would ever imagine doing such a thing. It would have been scandalous to wear a golden cross around your neck to wear a cross as some piece of jewellery, to, to transform the crucifixion into a fashion statement, into a good luck charm, something superstitious, which people do. It, it will be a bit like for us today, in the 21st century, it will be a bit 
like for us to wear perhaps a golden electric chair around our necks. You see, the cross was the crucifixion. It symbolised the crucifixion. It would be a bit like for us to wear a golden electric chair or a platinum noose or a diamond encrusted gallow on our ears, you see. It would be unheard of. It would be scandalous. And so for a person in the first century, the cross was something that was scandalous. To put it on display, as we do now, it would have been unheard of. But why do we do that? Christians have been doing that for centuries. Why is it that the cross has become a symbol of our faith, of the Christian faith? Why is that? Well, of course it comes down to the person of Jesus Christ. It comes down to the person of the Son of God, the one who is worshipped by billions of people over the centuries, the one who was trialled and condemned and tortured, the one who was crucified on that first Good Friday. You see, this is how the cross became a symbol of the Christian faith, and I know, and I'm sure you actually know that. But you see, because the cross in our culture has become so domesticated, it's sort of, in a sense, watered down, we sometimes forget the reality of what the cross was, the reality of the crucifixion. Now, if you think back to the first century, the cross was barbaric. It was shameful and it was also scandalous. You see, first it was barbaric, it was brutal. The, the crucifixion as a form of execution, it's been around for quite a long time, even before the Romans, but you see, it was the Romans who perfected this form of execution. They perfected it as a form of torture, of shame, of capital punishment, designed to produce a very slow death. Often people would hang there on the cross and it would take them several days before they would die. It was designed to produce the maximum pain and suffering. And so often with the capital punishment of the crucifixion, it would include some torture beforehand, flogging, whipping. And this is, of course, what we see in the story of Jesus. You see, Pilate the governor, he couldn't find any fault with Jesus, but yet he had Jesus flogged and whipped and tortured just to appease the crowd. And back then, the whips, they would often have pieces of glass and metal on them so that each time the victim was whipped, it would, in a sense, rip off and tear off pieces of skin and muscle. It was excruciating. This was part of the capital punishment. You see, the executioners back then, they don't have a code of ethical conduct that they have to work by. The executioners, the torturers, they pretty much have free reign over those they were torturing. And so after the torturing, what would happen next was the victim would have to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution. And this is, of course, what we see in our story, what we saw in that video before. Jesus was made to carry the cross. Carry the cross to be paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. And in this story, Jesus actually was not able to carry the cross himself, so they got Simon from Cyrene. And that was probably because Jesus was tortured to the extent that he was so weakened from the loss of blood. He was not able to carry the cross himself. And finally, when they get to the place of the execution, what they would do was they would nail the criminal, the victim, on the cross, hoist them up in the centre for everyone to see and left there to die. 
and the death of the victim was excruciating. It was torture at its worst. With every breath, just think about it, every breath, the victim who who's had their hands nailed had to sort of pull their body weight up with their arms, with whatever strength there was left in their arms, and with their legs to sort of stand up just to open their chest cavities so that they can take a breath of air. And so with every breath, they will be getting weaker and weaker. Their life slowly ebbs away until the victim, those crucified, they would often die from suffocation. And see, the crucifixion, if you think about it, we, we've sort of domesticated it. We, we look at it, it's a nice piece of jewellery, it's some nice symbol, but it was brutal, it was horrific, it was inhumane, it was barbaric, it was in fact only left for the worst of criminals, the foreigners, the slaves, those who commit treason. treason. And, and the Roman citizens, often they would be immune from the crucifixion unless it was very serious. You see, the crucifixion was so humane that it wasn't until the 4th century when Constantine, the first Christian emperor, when he came to power, he abolished the practice of the crucifixion because it was so inhumane. Instead, he replaced it with hanging by the gallows, saying that, that that's a quicker death and it's more humane. But you see, it was so unhumane, inhumane, so brutal. And that's what the cross represented. For us today, a piece of jewellery. We've sort of domesticated the cross. But not only that, you see, the cross was not only brutal and barbaric, it was actually a sign of extreme shame and humility. It took away any dignity that was left in the victim. You see, the crucifixion was not, not something that was done hidden away be, behind prison walls so that no one could see. Instead, the crucifixion was done and put on display for all to see. The faces of those criminals, they weren't covered with paper bags or plastic bags, but they were paraded down the streets of the city. And not only that, they were crucified um, not wearing any clothes. They were in fact crucified naked. We don't actually know that if we don't read up on history. They were crucified without any coverings. They were stripped naked and they were hoisted up in the most visible place, often on a hill. And that was what it was for Jesus. So just imagine that, down the streets of Swanson, Swanson Street, in the mall, a crucifixion. That would have been the place. By the steps of Parliament, a crucifixion. That would have been the place. Just unimaginable, the shame, the humiliation. Any dignity that was left in the victim was taken away as that victim was stripped and hoisted up and left hanging there on the cross. You see, that's just to give you a picture of how horrific, how shameful, how humiliating the cross was. And it's why the cross, because it has become a Christian symbol that we've domesticated, it actually took them about two centuries before it became a Christian symbol. It was so horrific that it wasn't until later into the second century or the third century that Christians started to use it as a symbol. You see, in the ancient world, the cross was so horrific, so brutal, that people would not even talk about the cross, would not even mention the word cross. They wanted to distance themselves from the cross as much as they could. And we learned this from philosophers who wrote, who recorded this down. There's a guy by the name of Cicero, a philosopher of the first century BC. He said this about the cross. He said, let the very mention of the cross, the word cross, be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, 
but from his mind, his eyes and his ears. You see, it was shameful, it was brutal. I wonder whether we sort of lose that sense today when we see a cross, when we wear the cross. Now, if the cross, if the crucifixion was like that, as shameful as it was, as brutal as it was, you can actually understand now how scandalous it was for anyone to go around to say that their God, their Master, their Saviour, died on the cross. People wanted to distance themselves from the cross as, as far as possible. But yet there were people who would go around and claim, my Saviour, my King, died on the cross. They would go around proclaiming that their King and their Saviour saved them by dying on the cross. Can you see the scandal of the cross? It just doesn't make sense. It's so silly. It's madness. It's scandalous to believe in such a thing. You see, the disciples, the Christians, the early followers of Jesus, they were ridiculed, they were mocked. How can you believe in such a thing? The Jews thought that the God who dies, that's a sign of weakness. That's a weak God. What type of God dies? The Greeks, they thought this is just foolishness. This is madness. There was a philosopher in the second century by the name of Celsus. He mocked Christians by saying, how can you believe in a carpenter who was nailed to a cross? He mocked Christians. He said, you guys are silly. And he said this about, about the story of the cross. He said, what drunken old woman telling stories to lull a small child to sleep would not be ashamed of muttering such preposterous things. I mean, that's what the Christians were doing. They were telling their kids the story of Easter, of what Jesus did for them, dying on the cross. But they were mocked by philosophers like Celsus. And the Romans, well, they accused the Christians as well. They mocked the Christians. How can you go on worshipping a criminal and his cross? How can you regard someone who died as a god? You see, the cross, in their mind, was an instrument of torture, a symbol of shame. And even the early Christians, those first Christians, they found it hard to digest. How can we believe this when they were attacked? The God of the Christians died a criminal's death on a tree of shame, condemned at the prime of his life to a cross with iron nails. What type of God dies? Even the gods of Greece and Rome were immortal. They didn't die. And you can see the mockery, the shame of the cross, the scandal of the cross. And even when Jesus was crucified, we see this in our passage in Luke 23. Jesus himself was mocked. In verse 35 we read that the rulers, they sneered at him and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. That is another word for king. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It wasn't just the rulers, it was the soldiers. In verse 36, they mocked him and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And not only that, in verse 38, Pilate, he had a notice placed above the head of Jesus. That was out of mockery. What was, what was his crime? This is the king of the Jews. It was out of mockery. And then in verse 39, we see the criminal hanging next to Jesus. He insulted Jesus and he said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
So do you see the scandal of the cross? It was brutal, it was shameful, but yet there were these Christians who went around proclaiming that they believe in the Son of God who died on the cross for them. That was scandalous. And so if this is the scandal of the cross, it makes us ask, who in their right mind would believe this stuff? Who in their right mind would believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God? the King and the Saviour. You see, if it's hard for anyone to believe this, I actually think it, it would have been hardest for those who were there at that time. If it's hard for anyone to believe this, I think it's hardest for those who actually witnessed the crucifixion. Those who were there, who witnessed it, who saw Jesus die and hang there hopeless and helpless, who cringed at his shame. Those who were there, it would have been hard for them to believe that Jesus hanging there, dying on the cross, was in fact the Son of God. As they saw him and his life ebbing away, moment by moment. But yet this is what we see in our Easter story, don't we? In Luke 23, it was hard for those who actually witnessed the crucifixion to believe it. How can you believe? He's dying there in front of your eyes. But yet, in this story, we see two guys who witnessed the crucifixion who witnessed the life of Jesus taken away, but yet they believed. So firstly we see a criminal in our story. The criminal next to Jesus, crucified next to Jesus, he saw Jesus next to him die. He saw the torture, he saw the shame, but yet he believed. Isn't that strange? He saw a helpless, hopeless man, but yet he believed in him. If we have a look at this passage, he actually recognised that Jesus was indeed the king. You see, only kings have kingdoms. Look at what he says in verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Only kings have a kingdom. And so he was in a sense recognising that Jesus was the king, that Jesus has a kingdom and a kingdom that in fact goes beyond the grave. He recognised that Jesus was not just a king of any kingdom, but in fact the king of heaven, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And as his own life was ebbing away, as he was facing death himself, this criminal, he begs Jesus to remember him. And so that shows that he actually placed his trust in this person who was dying. Saw his life ebb away, but he placed his trust in this guy who he recognised as his king. And then we also meet a soldier He not only witnessed the death of Jesus, he was perhaps even responsible for the crucifixion. He saw this man die, but yet he also believed in this. Isn't that strange? He saw a helpless, hopeless man die, but yet he believed. It was noon, the whole sky was dark, pitch black for three hours until 3pm. Nothing like that just happens naturally. And then Jesus breathed his last. He died. But at that moment, this soldier, this centurion standing there, perhaps putting together the pieces, perhaps putting together the pieces of the life of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his healings, his torture, his innocence and now his death, this centurion, he recognised that this was no ordinary man. And so in verse 47, he praised God and he said, Surely this is, surely this was a righteous man, a man from God. In another gospel we read that he said this was the son of God. 
You see, that's because these two, they recognise something about Jesus. Though he was dying on the cross, though he did die on the cross, they recognised that this was no ordinary man. And what this shows is that the crucifixion, you see, as scandalous as it was, was in fact no accident at all. It was not an unfortunate series of events which led to an unfortunate crucifixion of a hopeless and helpless and innocent man. It was no accident. I mean, just think about it. If Jesus is in fact the Son of God, if he really is the divine Son of God, hanging there on the cross, when the rulers sneered at him and they said to him, he saved others, let him save himself. And so they were saying to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, if you have come from God, if you are divine, you've saved others, we've seen that, you've healed the leper, you've raised the dead, you've calmed the storm, you've cast out demons, we've seen you save others. Why don't you come down from the cross? Don't you have that power? Can't you just get down from the cross? Now, don't you think Jesus was able to do that? Would Jesus have been able to just get off the cross? Well, if he is the divine son of God, he had all the powers of the universe at his disposal. He could have called down a legion of angels to come to his aid. He could, in fact, just have said the word. The nails would have flown off. He would have been healed immediately. He could have come down from the cross and stand there right in their presence. He could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? Why? Well, you see, the mockers were in fact speaking better than they know. When they said, he saved others, why can't you save yourself? They were speaking better than they know. You see, that was the mission of Jesus. He came to save others. But what that meant was he could not save himself. There's some irony in that. The irony, you see, you look at the cross, you see a hopeless, a helpless, a weak, a powerless man. But yet in the cross, it was a man of power because he came to save others. And there's an irony with that. Don Carson, a great theologian, he puts it this way. He says, if he had saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. The only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. You see, the mockers who mocked him, you save others. Why don't you save yourself? Why can't you save yourself? Well, they were, in a sense, speaking better than they know. And so that shows that the crucifixion, as brutal as it was, as shameful as it was, as scandalous as it was, was no accident. It was, in fact, to fulfil the prophecy we read in Isaiah. Do you remember that? Isaiah 53, verse 5. He spoke these words over 700 years before Jesus came. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He's looking forward to a time where someone would be pierced for his sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. You see, the death of Jesus was in the place of people who deserved the punishment of God. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the soldiers who restrained him and held him to the cross. It wasn't any physical restraint at all. Jesus could have got down if he wanted to. You see, what held Jesus to the cross 
was his purpose, was his mission to do the Father's will, was his love of the Father, was his love for the lost. It was his love for sinners like you and me that held him to the cross. It wasn't because he didn't have the power to get off. He had that power, but he was held there because of his love and his mission. And so Jesus, in this ironic sense, he could not save himself because he went there to save others, to save sinners like you and me. Now let's consider the criminal again, by Jesus' side. He begged Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now this criminal perhaps spoke better than he knew as well because how did Jesus answer him? When verse 43, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now we have to try to make sense of this. This was a criminal. You just wonder how many countless number of people he's hurt, he's stolen from, he's offended. This guy was guilty and he knew that. He was guilty before man and he was guilty before God. He knew that. But what did Jesus say to him? Today... You will be with me in paradise. Today you will have peace with God. You will come to heaven with me. And we actually know that this was achieved, achieved in the death of Jesus. There's actually a strong clue in our passage here when you were listening to that video. Do you notice what happened to the temple curtain when Jesus died? See, when Jesus died, this curtain which separated God from man this curtain which separated the Holy of Holies, which was where God dwelt, to the holy place in the temple. This place where no man could enter except the high priest and only once a year and only with a sacrifice, only with blood. That was into the presence of God. No one could go in. Only the high priest once a year. And what happened when Jesus died? In verse 45 we read, the curtain was torn in two. Now the author did not just put that in because it was interesting. It had deep significance. The curtain was torn in two. It was as though God grabbed the curtain off the temple and ripped it in part. Ripped it in two. It was as though God was saying, in the death of his son Jesus, you can now have peace with me. You can now have access to me because the death of Jesus was that sacrifice. The one who was crushed for our iniquities. And that's why Jesus was able to say on the cross, hanging there, to the criminal next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus knew his mission was to go to the cross, to be that sacrifice, to give access to people, to God. And so when we think about the cross today, when you see the cross, when you see it above me, when you see cross on our necks, on our ears as jewellery, what do you in fact see? Was it, what is it we see today? Just a religious decoration? A fashion statement even? Something superstitious? A good luck charm? Some people see it that way. We, we can't do that with the cross, can we? If you think about the cross, it was brutal. It was shameful, it was scandalous. And so when we see the cross, what we should be reminded is the greatest reminder of all. The reminder of what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, went through. He went through that brutal cross 
was crucified on the Roman cross, the shameful, humiliating cross. And what for? Not so that he could save himself. That was not his purpose. He could not save himself so that he could save others, sinners like you and me. And so this Easter, it's worth thinking about the cross. We'll see it again and again. We'll have hot cross buns later. You'll see the cross on it. What does it remind us of? A religious decoration? Or something with power? The death of the Son of God who died to save us. The death of the Son of God who brings peace with God. The death of the Son of God who in fact guarantees us a place in paradise just like that criminal. You see, this is the promise of the cross for those of us who respond like that criminal and trust in Jesus as the Lord, the King of the Kingdom and the Saviour. So what do you believe? Well, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ, Jesus who came from heaven, leaving his glory there, becoming a man, not to save himself, but to save others, to save sinners like us here. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that this Easter we'll be reminded of this great sacrifice, but also the great joy that we who believe have a place in paradise. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.